0: KZSU-FM Stanford, Uh, welcome to, unbelievably, the 10th anniversary show of Hearsay Culture. Uh, My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law, as well as an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet Society at Stanford Law School, and a visiting research collaborator at Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. I am blown away by what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it. I am pleased to have as a return guest, Professor Lawrence Lessig from Harvard Law School, who is joining me after an almost 10-year hiatus uh, on the show for the 10th anniversary of the show. Professor Lessig, for many Hearsay Culture listeners, is someone who's well known. Uh, Over the course of the last 10 years, Professor Lessig has pivoted from literally the founder of the internet law field and arguably the most influential copyright law scholar and activist in living memory, to someone who is advocating for fundamental changes in how democracy is structured and procedure, namely campaign finance reform. It is an amazing pivot and one that we're going to focus on today, but to take a step back for a personal moment, if you wouldn't mind. This show, being its 10th anniversary, is a remarkable thing to me for a couple of reasons. First. I started this show in May 2006 when I was a resident fellow at the Center for Internet Society at Stanford Law School, which Larry founded about five years earlier. I came in after having been a mid-level litigation associate in a couple of New York law firms, as well as at Corp. Council for the city of New York, looking for the opportunity to not only transition into teaching, but also to have an impact on the copyright and intellectual property law issues of the day. To my shock and amazement... Larry hired me to be a fellow at Stanford, and my wife, Heidi, who is sitting in the back, can remember quite well the shock that I had of actually getting the interview, where I thought to myself, there must be someone else they're thinking of. Are they serious? Or maybe there's a different position that they're going to interview me for, but... I was incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity in 2005 to go out to CIS and have the privilege of working for for Professor Lessig on a variety of issues, some of which we will talk about today, ranging from appellate opinions and copyright law to the advocacy kind of work that CIS has become known for. At the same time, Somewhat on a lark, I decided, you know what, let me see if I can get back into radio having done it in high school, and so I started hearsay culture by thinking there's lots of smart people at Stanford and maybe we should be talking to them. Guest number nine after wonderful guests, guest number one through eight included people that Larry and I and many of you might know well, Lauren Gelman, Jennifer Granick, and others finally came on the show, again, a bit to my shock and amazement, I thought, am I ready for this? And maybe I wasn't. But after show number nine, the show really took off. So I should say as a personal note, Larry, and I say this with all sincerity, that I thank you first for being on the show, secondly, for the simple fact that I would not have had the privilege of becoming a law professor without your support. And so I thank you from the bottom of my heart, and my family thanks you as well. In addition, and very, very quickly, I want to also thank my colleagues at KZSU, as well as the Center for Indian Society, who are the people who literally take this show and put it on the air. While I'm mentioning those folks, I should also thank Jeff Chilcott here at Elon, who is filming today for airing again next Friday. I need to thank and absolutely have to thank both Elon University School of Law as well as our Dean, uh, Dean Bierman, and also the president of the university, Leo Lambert, who is here, along with my colleagues who allow me to do this show, when I might be doing other things, uh, as well as the folks at the Turnage Center, and, and David Turnage is here, who is also responsible for funding Larry's visit here today. So thank, thank you both uh, and all of you for that. My guests, of course, are the reason why the content of the show is so wonderful, The audience, you and other listeners, are the reason why I do the show. And, of course, I could not close this without thanking my wife Heidi and my sons Noah and Benjamin, who are in school right now, uh, for allowing the show to go forward. And all the times I've recorded the show, while the boys are running around upstairs and Heidi is keeping them in line. So thank you, sweetheart, for that. Let me start off very quickly uh, with a very brief introduction before I stop speaking. And because this is truly an interview show, you are now going to mostly hear from Larry. Uh, Larry is a uh, professor at Harvard Law School, having previously founded the Center for Innovation Society at Stanford Law School. Uh, Professor Lessig has written a number of books. And many articles, not only in the field of intellectual property, but as well more recently on democracy and campaign finance. His book, Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace, is the foundational text in Internet law. My students who are sitting in this room know that quite well from Internet law, but also from intellectual property. The the articles that Larry has written on issues ranging from fair use to the very nature of sharing information are, again, canons in the field. Uh, Professor Lessig argued the Eldred case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, which we'll be talking about today. He is also, and we really could just spend the rest of the time, rattling off the various affiliations and honors that Professor Lessig has had, but suffice to say that the influence that Professor Lessig has had, not only in the field of intellectual property, but now more recently having been a Democratic presidential candidate for this election cycle on theories of democracy and action around issues of democracy from campaign finance to literally how we fund our elections and how we choose our representatives is ultimately going to be the kinds of issue that will make or break our democracy. Larry, having flown down here this morning from Boston and returning to D.C. to deal with having been arrested on Capitol Hill last week for protesting a campaign finance system, is very graciously joining us today. Where I fully expected, having read that Larry got arrested, that this event may not go forward, but here he is today. So, Larry, thank you so much for joining me today on this 10th anniversary of Hearsay Culture. Great to be here. Thank you. So as I started off, and I don't know how I couldn't do this interview correctly without immediately getting to this issue of the arrest, right? Uh, You're heading to D.C. as soon as we're done here to pay a fine for having protested the state of our campaign finance laws. Can you frame this protest around your current focus, and how are your proposals advanced through what we would clearly call civil disobedience?
1: Well, it's a great place to explain it because the relationship between that protest and the larger, older movement pushing for campaign finance reform, as some call it, or I think democracy, as we should call it, is the same relationship that existed between those boys who sat at the Woolworths here in this town uh, and the civil rights movement at the time. When when the Woolworth protests happened, the sit-ins happened, the civil rights movement was upset that they were breaking from the orthodoxy of how they were going to push the civil rights movement forward. And those, uh, those younger students and activists were convinced that that was the way to begin to put pressure on the process to demand change, change that was obviously 400 years in coming. Um, and what's happened in uh, the, uh, the movement for democracy is that a younger group, I don't claim ownership of this group because I'm not actually a younger person, but um, the younger group of activists um, led by an incredible uh, person named Kai Newkirk have uh, begun a process of much more direct engagement to try to force Congress to confront the deep corruption that they've allowed to evolve inside of our political system. So the Democracy Spring movement began in, in Philadelphia on April 2nd and marched from Philadelphia to Washington. Um, And I was a weekend walker because I had to teach, but I walked on Saturday and Sunday, and then flew back and taught, and then came back on Saturday and Sunday again, and flew back and taught, and then came back on Friday of last week to participate in one of the sit-ins. And those sit-ins led to arrest, and it was the largest number of people arrested at the US Capitol in the history of the US Capitol, but trying to drive Congress to address this deep structural corruption which, um, of course, they're very eager not to address. And so my view is this movement has got to become much more engaged, much more directly pressuring Congress to address this issue. And I was happy to participate in risk arrest. And um, it turned out, uh, you know, being a upper middle class white guy, it wasn't so bad to get arrested. You know, it's not the same for all people who are arrested. Um, uh, and uh, now I have to go back and take care of the consequences today.
0: And so let me, let's me let take a step back before I kind of ask you about the methods you're using and, and pivot towards some of the intellectual property law issues and technology issues. So to frame the meaning of this debate, right, in light of the kinds of what appear to be intractable forces around this issue, perhaps it would be good to lay out, and I know you could spend the next 40 minutes, and I should say I've disenfranchised you of one of your patented methods of doing presentations, <laughs> which is your unbelievable PowerPoints, right? So I apologize, I really should apologize to the audience for this. Do you want to spend a couple of minutes to kind of lay out fundamentally what your proposals are, and then we'll take a step back from them?
1: Yeah, I would like that. Because when people use the word campaign finance reform, it makes the issue seem way too geeky and esoteric. Uh, And uh, and I think the first critical thing that's going to happen is that people have to recognize that it's a much more fundamental problem that we're talking about. And the fundamental problem is our republic was meant to be a representative democracy. Uh, And by representative democracy, what Madison said in Federalist 52 was that we would have a branch, Congress, that would be, quote, dependent on the people alone. And just to make sure everyone was clear about what that meant, in Federalist 57, Madison said, by the people, I mean, quote, not the rich more than the poor. So dependent on the people alone, and by the people, he meant everyone, not the rich more than the poor. Now, I wish he had said, not the white people more than the black people. or not the men more than the women. So those dimensions of equality were not important to him. But what was important to the framing generation is that we have a republic that would be representative regardless of wealth. Well, we've allowed a system to evolve that has no relation to that ideal. We've allowed a system to evolve where the only way you get elected to Congress is if you raise money, unbelievable amounts of money, not from all of us, but from the tiniest fraction of the one percent of us. Um, members of Congress, candidates for Congress, spent anywhere between 30 and 70 percent of their time raising money from a tiny, tiny fraction of the one percent. Now, you know, in the old South, in Texas, for example, they used to have something called the white primary. The white primary was is the Democratic Party only allowed white people to vote to select the candidates who then ran in the general election. And in those days. The Democratic Party mattered, right? It's not the day today. <laughs> Only party that mattered was the Democratic Party. So that's a system to make it so African-Americans had no real input into the selection of the candidates who actually were the candidates you got to select in the general election. Well, we don't have a white primary in America anymore. We have a green primary. We have an election, this process of selecting candidates through the money primary, where the vast majority of us of us have no real input into that process of selecting those candidates. We've been excluded in a way that makes it so the candidates who are elected are completely responsive to the funders of their campaigns and not responsive to any of us. And that's not just sloganeering, right? There's this amazing study by Martin Gillins and Ben Page. Um, from a lesser university called Princeton or something like that. Um, uh, and uh, what they found, they did this largest empirical study of actual decisions by our government, relating those decisions to the, uh, to the attitudes of the economic elite, organized interest groups, and the average voter. And what they found was uh, with the economic elite, The higher the percentage of the elite who support something, the more likely it was that that thing was enacted. So as you go from 0 to 100% supporting it, the probability of that being enacted went up. Same thing with organized interest groups. As you go from low percentage supporting to high percentage supporting, the probability of that being enacted went up. That's the relationship you expect. But when they looked at the average voter, the average voter was a flat line, meaning as you went from 0% of the average voter supporting something to 100% of the average voter supporting something, it didn't change the probability of that thing being enacted. So that the actual average voter is having no independent influence on what our government actually does in a democracy. This is a fundamental denial of the basic commitment of a representative democracy that we are represented equally. And until we begin to understand That this fight is not a fight for campaign finance reform, it's a fight for the very soul of what a democracy is. It's a fight for the equality of citizenship. It is a fight for the moral claim of we as citizens on this democracy. We won't begin to create the kind of energy and passion and power that's going to be necessary to take on those interests that now control that system. So that's why. What Kai is doing, and Democracy Spring, and Democracy Awakening—these groups are doing—to make it a much more tangible uh, and visceral movement that had, you know, hundreds of people. Typically, most of them are students, or a bunch of older people too, who are doing this walk, who are demanding something which, you know, ten years ago it was impossible to imagine people fighting for democracy reform. You know, it's easy to understand them fighting for climate change or student loan reform or healthcare reform, um, but. Uh, But now these people have recognized, we're not going to get climate change legislation until we change the democracy we have. We're not going to get addressing the problem of student debt until we change the democracy we have. People are beginning to recognize this is not the most important issue. It's just the first issue. If we don't solve this, we don't solve anything. and That's the real hope, I think, for this issue right now.
0: You're listening to KZSU FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture recording live with Larry Lessig uh, from Elon University School of Law. So, so Larry, I, I've, I've got to ask you this question as well. So when I was a fellow at CIS and we're working on fair use issues and Golan uh, and other copyright reform issues, I recall Jennifer Granick, who then was uh, running CIS, advising me that, quote, we are the lawyers and not the clients. Um, you're now arguably, right. given events last week, you've transitioned from lawyer to client. Do you buy that characterization? And if so, what's your take on it? And if not, why? Well, Jennifer is always right about everything she says. <laughs> um,
1: but um, I am not the lawyer. I'm the client. I'm a citizen. right? I got into this business because of a really extraordinary boy um, who was a dear friend. Um, And many people, I'm sure, who listen to your show know this person, Aaron Swartz, who um, was uh, the architect of the technical infrastructure for Creative Commons. He had built the protocol for the RSS uh, um, feed. Um, He was one of the founders of Reddit, um, an extraordinary activist and and really one of the only geniuses I've ever known, um, um, who was uh, eventually arrested for downloading too many academic articles at MIT that they thought he was going to make available to the world. God forbid the Harvard Law Review would be available to the world. Um, but there he was charged uh, by the prosecutor in, uh, in, uh, in Boston uh, and threatened with uh, the, the press release said 35 years in jail for what he did. And after two years of struggling, um, he eventually took his life because the burden of that case was just too great. But, um, but bef- long before those dark days, uh, Aaron came to me a decade ago and he said to me, um, why do you think you're ever going to make any progress on the issues you care about so long as we have this corrupt political system? And I said, uh, you know, Aaron's not my field, not my field. And he said, you mean as an academic? And I said, yeah, as an academic, it's not my field. I do internet, I do copyright, I don't do, I don't do democracy. And he said, OK, but what about as a citizen? Is it your field as a citizen? And I realized you know, he had challenged me in a really critical way. Uh, I, could, I, I, I could respond to the challenge in a way that let me be the person I wanted to believe I was. Uh, Or I could respond to the challenge in a way that it was completely rational to respond. And the rational response was to say, look, I got a good gig going here, Aaron. I'm like at the top of my field. I speak all across the world. People pay me to speak. It's amazing. I write books. Uh, They're bestseller books. Like I don't need to give up a career at this stage in my life. But the person I wanted to be was the person who had a reason for what I did. And I thought to myself, you know, what the hell is tenure for? I'm not going to lose my job. I've done the internet stuff. I've written six books. Uh, um, do I want to spend the rest of my life like tweaking exactly what the best argument for fair use is? Or do I want to, you know, take on an issue which at that time, you know, there's no hope that we would win. There was no hope we were going to do anything, but at least, you know, there's generations of work before you win. And so let's be at the beginning of the, the long, many generational process till we could win. So, that night, uh, I said, "Okay, you win. You win. Um, if you'll join me, uh, then I will announce this summer that I'm giving up this work on copyright, um, and uh, we'll start uh, we'll start a project together. We did. It was called Change Congress. It's become a group called Root Strikers, um, and that was the beginning. That was the beginning of this work. Um, uh, and so, uh, you're right. I'm not the lawyer. I'm I'm the client, and we're all clients. We're all clients." And I think what's really important for lawyers to recognize. Uh, you know, we grew up thinking uh, victory was five votes. Like the model for a lawyer is to get five votes on the Supreme Court. Every social issue. Let's just go to the Supreme Court, and get five votes, and we win. And that's why we took the case of the Supreme Court in Eldred. I was convinced we'd get five votes for the idea that copyright would be limited, and we would win. And when we lost in Eldred, that shifted my understanding of what really democracy is about. It's not five votes. You've got to get millions of votes. You've got to get America to agree with you. you get America to agree with you, the courts will follow. And that's the same issue here. You know, 90% of the progressives who fight in the area of, quote, campaign finance reform will tell you the thing we've got to do is to get the Supreme Court to reverse Citizens United. Terrible decision. But I don't want five votes. I want millions of votes. I want a Congress that votes to change the way campaigns are funded so we begin to have a democracy that's responsive to the people. And the Supreme Court can't do that. You can't reverse Citizens United and give us a democracy. You know, the day before Citizens United was decided, January 20th, 2010. It's not like we had a beautiful swimming along democracy. right? The democracy was already dead. The Supreme Court may have shot the body, but the body was already cold. right? And what we have to recognize is the fight here is much more than to reverse the mistake the Supreme Court made. The fight is to get back the basic idea of a, of a democracy, which is equality, equality of citizens. Um, so I am a client. We all are clients, clients fighting for the basic right that democracy should have, the way democracies give us that right, by citizens standing up and say, to hell
0: with what we've got now, I want something better. The, you said a lot there. And I think I, I, I hesitate to ask this question, but I think it's an important one. We're in an era of what appears to be, despite the ability to access information from all over the globe, despite opportunities to advance one's understanding of the world in ways that heretofore have not been seen, in an era of increasing cynicism and ultimately of hopelessness around the ability for one individual to make change. The question that I have as I hear your impassioned statement is, are you an idealist? And if you're an idealist, is that a problem?
1: Yeah, of course I'm an idealist. And I'm an idealist because, like you, I have three young children. You have two, I have three, but they're the same age. And what it means to have children is to, is to feel this responsibility. You know, we're the first generation handing over to our kids a country that's worse off than the one we inherited. The first time we turn over a system that is radically dysfunctional relative to the one we had. So I've got to be an idealist because I can't live with the idea that we fail those, that my kids or your kids or any, you know, the, the kids we teach at at, this, at, at universities like the, at, at law schools like this. Uh, and you know, the truth is, a decade ago, when Aaron and I talked about this issue. We both laughed about how hopeless it was. It was like you know, taking on Disney's one thing, but now let's take on the corruption in Washington. Like, right. talk about right. an impossible fight. Right. Um, uh, but the reality is, ten years later, I don't take credit for this. But the reality is, ten years later, they, we've made enormous progress. We've just had an election. We're in the middle of an election cycle a republican candidate the leading republican candidate is the leading republican candidate i believe because at the very beginning of this race he looked at everybody else on that stage and said you guys are all bought i own you guys he said to jeb bush how can you take a million dollars from contributors and not be thinking about what those contributors are thinking when you make a decision in the interest of the public you can't make a decision in the interest of the public and the idea that a Republican candidate would be making money in politics a central issue was unthinkable a decade ago, um, and what we know from the polling is that regular Republican voters are not any different from regular Democratic voters about this issue. Slight differences, like two or three points within the margin of error, they all we all believe this is a corrupt system. We've got to find a way to change this corruption, um, and. Uh, and now, more than 70%, the last poll I saw, 72% support the idea of bottom-up, small-dollar public funding of elections, the single change that would be the most important to radically change the way our government functions. So we're at this moment of enormous potential around this issue. Um, I, and so uh, I have to be an idealist. And I think there's a reason to be idealistic and hopeful about it, because I think there's a real chance um, we can fix this.
0: Larry, before we take a very quick break, um, and and after that break, we can uh, take a step back into some of the broader technology issues about what you've written, and I know you still think. Uh, You've alluded to it uh, in your discussion of your proposals and also the state of policymaking. You've alluded to this idea of corruption. Right? And you've written about corruption in your book, Republic Lost, and it's been a, obviously a significant focus of what you've been doing. The colloquial understanding of corruption, of course, you know, imagines the person, and, and there are examples of this, of course, of policymakers and elected officials taking the proverbial brown envelope right, with cash in it and then going about doing bidding. But you have a different take, or at least you define corruption differently. For the benefit of the listeners, particularly in the context of literally what some call bribe, right, bribery going on in Congress, what's your definition of corruption? Yeah, you know, lawyers are really obsessed with
1: this very narrow <laughs> definition of corruption, right. which is quid pro quo bribery. And if you're not accusing me of bribery, you're not accusing me of corruption. Uh, and Hillary Clinton has been, like, demonstrating this. When Bernie Sanders says the system is corrupt, she says... And, and he taxed her for taking this money. She says, show me the relationship between the money and anything I've done. But that's to completely miss the point, right? There's, a, there's an obvious, broader sense of corruption, which is not about whether people are engaging in bribery, but whether the system is corrupt relative to the design that was meant for it. So I told you, Madison said, we would have a Congress dependent on the people alone. That was the exclusive dependence. Well, we've now introduced a new dependence, a dependence on the funders. And the funders are not the people. There's no relationship between the funders of campaigns and what the people want. So that's an additional corrupting dependence. It's a dependence corrupting the intended structure that the framers had. It's a corruption of the institution not a corruption of that, it's not saying anything about whether members in the institution are corrupt. And indeed, I believe our Congress is the cleanest Congress from the standpoint of bribery in the history of Congress. In the old days, in the good old days, we had lots of bribery, right? That wasn't, but the thing about bribery is that it at least has shame associated with it. You at least kind of suppress the amount of bribery. You don't brag about the number of bribes that you've engaged in. But this current system, there's no shame attached to it. You get to be a chairman of a committee by bragging about the fact that you've raised $20 million for the Democratic Party or $15 million for the Republican Party. This is all out in the open, in plain sight, corruption. Um, and I think, you know, most people actually have a pretty good sense si- of this. I was at a a committee hearing in Delaware um, for a question of whether we have an Article 5 convention. And a programmer stood up and he said, you know, I'm just a technologist. But I need you to understand, you are corrupt, talking about, you know, politicians. He said, you're not corrupt in a criminal sense. You're corrupt the way a hard disk gets corrupt. You're just not reading the data correctly. And I can explain to you how hard disk gets corrupted. And I can explain to you why you're corrupted. You're corrupted because you're so focused on what the funders of campaigns want. You're not focused on what we want. That's corruption. It's not saying you're a criminal. It's saying the system isn't working. And that seemed to be completely obvious. Even the representatives in that committee got it. I think most people would get it if we lawyers would stop saying, oh, no, no, it's not corruption. There's no bribery. You haven't shown any bribery there. So it's just a broader sense of what corruption is about.
0: You're listening to KZSU FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture with Professor Larry Lessig. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, KZSU is a nonprofit non-commercial radio station at Stanford University that requires donation donations from listeners uh, to continue its diverse programming. Uh, you can email our underwriting department at underwriting at KZSU.stanford.edu or go to the web page for KZSU and click on Donate to KZSU. Uh, regardless, and this is not, by the way, bribery or corruption. This is simply <laughs> straight funding of the station, uh, to be clear. Uh, regardless, we hope you continue to listen to the show. Uh, Larry, let me, let me take a step back uh, for a moment and, and recognizing that your current focus is indeed campaign finance issues. But but I do want to ask you to reflect a bit on the copyright and technology law issues uh, about which you, you not only built your name but have had enormous influence. Uh, and you mentioned Eldred. Uh, and for those who aren't familiar, uh, the Eldred opinion was a Supreme Court opinion that held fundamentally, although there's a lot more texture to it, uh, that copyright terms could be constitutionally extended to the life of the author plus 70 years. In effect, you argued, uh, and not only in Eldred, but relatedly in Golan, where I worked as a, basically as a junior associate of sorts uh, when I was a fellow in other cases, you've argued that this is in effect a perpetual copyright term, which the court rejected, despite its impact on information sharing and cultural development. Uh, I've asked you some personal questions today. Indeed, I think I'm going to continue in that vein. Uh, You represented Eldred. Uh, You argued the case in front of the Supreme Court. In the aftermath of Eldred, where uh, the court pretty soundly said, although there were some different opinions that this argument wasn't going to hold water, you wrote that your belief was that the case needed a better advocate. Uh, You wrote, quote, a lawyer and not a scholar. Indeed, you said, quote, you let the view of the law that you liked interfere with the view of the law as it is. You're now focusing on these broad endemic problems, not only of democracy, but ultimately, in my view, of decision making and how decisions are made within public policy. Recognizing, of course, that the courts are a separate branch from the legislative arena in which you are focusing and the executive branch, indeed. Uh, Given how this issue has evolved, do you still agree with that self-assessment? Uh, and if so, how have those insights focused you today? Or if not, why? Well, I think the biggest lesson that
1: Eldred taught, um, something I adverted to before, mm-hmm. was that the most important change was cultural. So I made a deal with Eric Eldred, the, the client, Um, Eric, before the argument, said, you know, he said, I'm grateful for what you've done. We're not going to win. And so I don't want this to disappear. So I want you to commit that you'll do something to try to set up a foundation or something to support the public domain. And I said, you know, I was convinced we were going to win. So I said, sure, Eric, I'll do that. That's no problem. Because I didn't believe I'd have to go through with it because I thought we'd win and it'd be free. Um, And so when we didn't win, um, I had to go through with it. And we uh, um, put together... um, this group Creative Commons, and what Creative Commons tried to do was to give people really a way to say, I don't believe in the extremes on either side. So when you license your material under Creative Commons, what you're saying is, share my work, copy my work. Um, You might reserve the right for commercial use, or you might reserve the right for derivative use, but you at least give everybody a right to copy and share the work non commercially It's the minimal freedoms. And what we found when we did that was millions of people thought this was a better way to express the balance they thought copyright should be striking than the kind of all rights reserved call my lawyer model that uh, that Hollywood or the uh, copyright extremists were pushing. And what that did was begin to uh, solidify a recognition in the people that this extremism just didn't make sense. And as that recognition gets solidified, judges begin to reflect. This more balanced sense of copyright. So, if you look at the evolution of fair use cases, when we were uh, litigating these cases, you know, the judges is issuing these insane decisions, blowing up businesses, shutting down all sorts of ways of interacting, because it didn't didn't comply with the strict kind of uh, extreme view of copyright. Now you have the Supreme Court passing on reviewing the Google uh, right. Google Books case, which uh, which I think was absolutely rightly decided, but which of course. 10 years ago, nobody would have thought that the courts would uphold, basically allowing Google Books to engage in this massive copying and access to these old books in, in snippet form um, in a way that I think reflect, this decision absolutely reflects the growing public awareness of the need for a better balance in copyright. So, so um, that's why I, you know, I think that the real work to be done is to figure out how we move the public, the democracy, to the right place. And then let the lawyers clean up the mess that the law will continue to make. Um, so in the Eldred case, uh, you know, the particular argument we were trying to make was that if you had a provision that said Congress has the power to um, secure to authors uh, a copyright for um, exclusive right for, quote, limited times, that doesn't mean anything if every time the time's about to expire. Congress gets the power to extend that limited time. And in Eldred, Congress had, we were able to say Congress had extended the term of existing copyrights 11 times in the prior 40 years. Um, and our belief was this was like perpetual copyright on the installment plan, that every 10 years or every 20 years, Congress was just going to extend the term again and again and again and again, and so we'd never have limited terms. And at the time we made that argument, it wasn't clear to people why that was important. Like why it was important to have a public domain? Like why shouldn't Disney own Mickey Mouse forever? Um, And the answer to that question is not Mickey Mouse. The answer to the question is the 99% of work which nobody has any access to today because it's not commercially accessible after 20 years which rots on the shelf because nobody can do anything with it because they can't clear the copyrights because we don't even know who the copyright owners are. Um, That work Um, is the work that we need to liberate from copyright so that it can be preserved and shared and spread uh, broadly. Jamie Boyle at at Duke did this really fantastic brief in that case that made this argument around um, documentary films. And the argument about documentary films is that, you know, if you look at the history of documentary films, those are films that relied extensively on on copying material and including material. Think of civil rights films, all this amazing work that was copying and and including other type of work. If that if that if that body of work continues to be under copyright, it will literally disappear because the work is all on nitrate-based film stock, and nitrate-based film stock dissolves after fifty years. So unless you have a way to you know an economic way to copy and make it available to others. You won't do it, but nobody will do it for that work because you can't begin to identify who the copyright owners are. So it sits in this anti-commons, this place where uh, because anybody can block access to it, it doesn't get used. And so this culture is no longer accessible because of the unintended consequence of helping Mickey Mouse. Well, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, people really didn't begin to have a sense of that. And I think today the court would have a much richer sense of just what was at stake. And I think if this issue goes back up to the court, which it might because, of course, Sonny Bono Copyright <laughs> Term Extension Act coming to an end. And I'm sure I've already heard the words that Disney are beginning to talk about what they can do to extend the term of copyright again. If they do it again, I think it's over. Because I don't think the courts can allow them to, continue to do it because the democracy has finally come to recognize what's at stake.
0: We're chatting with Professor Larry Lessig on KCSUFM FM, Stanford, uh, live from Elon University School of Law. Uh, Larry, you've alluded to it, um, and I want to ask you about interest group politics around these issues. Um, by the time this show airs, uh, Pam Samuelson from Berkeley will have been on the show talking about the Authors Alliance, which, as you know, but some in this audience may not know, was an organization founded by Pam, who is a who is a one of the leading intellectual property law scholars as well of the last 30 years, uh, designed to be in many ways very different from the Authors Guild that has represented the interest of, broadly speaking, uh, increasing copyright terms and stronger copyright. Uh, When I talked to Pam about that issue, uh, she and and I talked about the nature of policy making around copyright and the role of the Authors Alliance. Without direct reference to the Authors Alliance, but more broadly, what do you see today as the role of interest groups in particular, right, in light of these copyright changes, and in light of what you just alluded to, which is a critical issue, which is perhaps the reemergence of copyright law after a few year hiatus, anyway, after Stop Online Piracy Act, of a central issue in IP. Yeah, well, so when this
1: statute was passed, this is before I was involved in the issue, um, some of the most important activists included people like Dennis Cariala, who's a professor at Arizona. Um, Dennis would describe how he would go to Capitol Hill to testify about this issue. And um, uh, you know, he would get five minutes to make his point, and there were maybe three people in the committee. Uh, and then the other side, uh, Hollywood, would get to testify. And they would bring the movie stars or um, you know, Sonny Bono or Cher or whatever you know, to show up to testify in favor of extending the term of copyright. And the audience was filled. And uh, every member of Congress was sitting there listening to that testimony. And what was the real de- difference? I mean, you know, Dennis is not maybe as compelling as, um, as Sonny Bono was. But, um, uh, but the real difference was, um, as Dennis told me, public domain doesn't have a lobby, doesn't have a lobbyist, doesn't have a funding source. And those guys um, had taken huge amounts of money from the people who would benefit from the extension of this copyright. and, and the, the logic of copyright, of course, has no connection to the idea of extending the term of existing copyright. Um, you know, Copyright is to create incentives. Incentives in this universe, Star Trek is a little different, but in this universe are prospective. You can only create incentives for stuff in the future. Even the United States Congress can't increase the incentives that George Gershwin has to produce great work. You can't produce incentives backwards. That's just a basic fact of this Reality. Now, um, so when Congress extends the term of an existing copyright, it has no connection to the motive reason for copyright. Um, indeed, when we challenged the statute, we had, it was a brief written by a bunch of economists, including five Nobel Prize winners, including, no, uh, including Milton Friedman, um, that left-wing, oh, wait, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> that right-wing libertarian economist who said he would only sign the brief if the word no-brainer was somewhere in the brief. So obvious was it that you couldn't advance the public good by extending the term of an existing copyright. Yet Congress unanimously passed that statute because there was zero political cost to passing it and huge political benefit, which was you know the millions of dollars that was flowing into their campaign coffers. So that was a context where there was uh, no awareness, nobody on the other side, no public recognition of why this was an important issue, and they could get away with, with murder. Murder of the Public Domain, which they did. Now, Pam um, uh, and the Authors Alliance and uh, her, her colleague, uh, Molly Von Holling, who was also a fellow at the Center for Internet Society, sure. now a professor at Berkeley, um, have done an enormous job in muddying the waters about what authors care about. I'm a member of the Authors Alliance. Um, I used to be a member of the Authors Guild. The Authors Guild is an extremist organization that argues in favor of a copyright law that benefits the top 2% of authors. But 98% of authors aren't benefited by the policies which the Authors Guild presses. The Authors Alliance is made up of not just famous novelists or famous um, nonfiction writers who can sell New York Times bestseller uh, works, but they're also made up of poets or people who are Um, uh, you know, academics or people who are creating their authors. They're the people that the copyright clause was meant to protect, but they aren't interested in a copyright regime that makes it impossible for people to get access to their work. And so that muddying of the interest makes it much harder for members of Congress to stand up and say, yes, I believe in copyright. Therefore, copyright term, 200 years. Um, Instead, they've got to justify why they're benefiting incumbent industries rather than benefiting authors generally or benefiting the public, which of course ultimately is supposed to be the purpose of copyright.
0: So, Larry, we're, we're reaching what uh, hearsay culture listeners know is the what I call the unfair portion of the show. Oh, um, yes. Yes. So get <laughs> ready. Uh, having had lots of time to answer questions, I now truncate your time. Although in this case, it's really not that unfair since it is you indeed that have to leave quickly, whereas I might keep going. So uh, so in this case, maybe it's a moderately fair uh, limitation. But we have about 11 minutes left. Um, I do want to ask you a bit about your presidential run. Um, it, it was short lived, it was novel in its construction in, in, a, in a very interesting way. Uh, but given how the primaries have played out, because you ended your campaign several months ago, right? Do you regret? dropping out when you did. And and I want to frame it this way without reference to the politics specifically, right? Do you think you have had had a shot, for example, given the fact that as we sit here today and we're recording on April 26, 2016, there's at least one major party candidate, uh, Governor Kasich from Ohio who's running despite having been mathematically eliminated from the race. Uh, Now, perhaps you can't disaggregate that from, as you've alluded to, right, the the truly unique and perhaps insane primary process that we currently find ourselves in. But uh, do you regret that? And then secondly along those same lines, if you had been elected President of the United States, do you think you would have been able to make the changes that you've called for given what exists today, which is not the campaign finance system as I alluded to earlier, that you would like, but the campaign finance system that it is? So, um,
1: what I recognized last summer uh, was that we were not going to have an election where a candidate was going to make reforming the issue the primary push of his or her campaign. They were going to talk about campaign finance, no doubt. But they were going to not make it clear to people why fixing this issue first was the critical issue to make anything else possible. Um, I knew that because I had been advisor to Bernie, and I'd had this exchange with them. And I'd said, look, you need to make this change primary. Especially you, because when you talk about single payer health care, most people are going to roll their eyes and say, oh, come on, Bernie. You can't possibly do that given the insurance companies or the pharmaceutical companies. That just never happened. But if you say, look, no, we are going to fix the corrupted system first, then you know, who knows what's possible once we fix the corrupted system. I knew he wasn't going to do that. He, they had told me. I knew it. OK, so I thought. How can we make the centrality of this issue central to the election? And um, we recognized that we could hack the, uh, we thought we could hack the debates, at least. Because it looked like to get into debates, the Democratic Party said you just had to have 1% in three polls within six weeks of the debate. Um, And the numbers indicated we could get that. If I could raise a credible amount of money, that could get the attention to get into the debates. And if I was in the debates, even if I was just in the debates, the view was it would be worth it, because we could make every question tie back to this and at least force the Democrats to acknowledge the primacy of this issue. So I had a conversation, much like my conversation with Aaron, with another cyber law expert, uh, John Zittrain. And I said, Zittrain, uh, you've got to help me with this decision. And he said, well, sh- tell me the pros and the cons. And I said, well, the pros is, there's a pretty significant chance I get into the debate. And if nothing more, uh, that would be an enormous contribution to the fight, because people would not be able to evade the fact that this is primary. We have to get this done first. And that would be an enormous contribution. He said, OK, that sounds convincing. What's the downside? And I said, people will think I'm insane. <laughs> you know, I've got a good reputation. <laughs> a little bit tarnished in certain corners of the universe, but..." Um, uh, but my kids could go to Disney World. There was no problem at all with that. <laughs> uh, but people will think I'm insane. And, uh, and I'm, not sh- I'm not that kind of person. I'm not insane. I don't want to be thought of as crazy. I-, I want to be able to go through life without people thinking that's that crazy guy who ran for president. So Zittrain left my office, and he came back five minutes later. And he said, well, you're obviously going to do it. And I thought, why is that obvious? Because at that moment, I had told my wife I wasn't going to do it. And he said, well, you're not going to be able to go through life thinking the only reason you didn't do it is because you didn't want to be made fun of. And that was like Aaron when he said that. I was cornered <laughs> because that's true. That was the only reason I would say no. And was that a good enough reason to say no? So I said yes. I told my wife that night, I, I think we're gonna have to, I'm going to have to do it, which means we're going to have to do it. And she was not incredibly happy about that, but she was willing to go along Uh, And, in fact, you know, the plan was raise a million dollars in a month, qualify for the debates, get into the debates. So we raised a million dollars in less than a month. According to the rules the Democratic Party announced, we qualify for the debates. But it's kind of like Al Gore, you know, we won, but we didn't win, right? (laughs) Because uh, they changed the rules. Uh, So the week, the last week of October, Beginning of the week, my campaign manager says, "We have the data. You're going to make it. You're going to have three polls finding you at one percent within six weeks of the debate. You're going to be in the second debate." And the end of the week, he got a call from the Democratic Committee saying, "You guys don't understand the rules." And uh, he said, "What do you mean?" He said, "It's not three polls within six weeks of the debate. It's three polls at least six weeks before the debate." And he went. This is Steve Jardine. He went. He went ballistic. He said. That's not what it says. And he showed them Debbie Wasserman Schultz's speech, where she said exactly what we said. And they said, well, yeah, whatever. That's the rules as it is right now. So at that Hmm. moment, I realized they were not going to let me in the debate. And the thing about running for president is you've got to ask people for support. And I could not, in good faith, continue to ask people for support, money support, when I knew that there was no chance that I would actually have the opportunity to make the case in a context where it could matter. So if I wasn't going to be in the debates, this was not an ego thing for me. I mean, I, you know, I knew it was a negative ego experience for me, um, and so I, I announced that weekend that there was no reason to continue the campaign. So would I, you know, would I want to stay in the debates, stay in the campaign if I could have been in the debates? Absolutely. You know, I, I would have gone all the way to the end if I could have been in the debates, at least to the standpoint of getting this issue out. But um, you know, John Kasich uh, got to be in every debate, um, and, I, and still he, um, you know, is that six
0: percent right like that. right Larry, let me ask one last question before we close um, you know I, I look around the room and I see many of my colleagues here at Elon uh, who I'm privileged to work with <clears throat> we have a communication and technology scholars group that Laura Rizal and I founded I see William Moner and Brian House and others in this room who have made my experience here at Elon that much more enriching by having the blessing of having wonderful colleagues also and equally Right? Our primacy here is in what we do in the classroom, and I always tell my students that the first thing I want to focus on is making sure that I help you be the best attorney you can be. Um, it's a privilege and an honor, as I know you share, right, to train people to enter this profession. And so I want to close, and you have four minutes uh, for, to answer this question. Uh, for students who are looking to become effective advocates, right? but more specifically looking to become change agents right? as you continue to focus, right, both in the courtroom but also out of it in society. What are your recommendations? But I don't want to ask it in the very loose right way where you say, well, work hard. right? Um, more specifically, what skills should students develop and is there anything that students shouldn't be doing as they build those skills?
1: You know, I'm not sure I'm a good person to ask this question to because, um, you know, if you want to be a lawyer, powerful in the establishment of lawyers, I've not accomplished that. I've never really been interested in in how I fit within that structure. So. If my son or daughter said to me, how can I be the best lawyer I could be? I would say, bottle that idealism which you had on the first day when you sat down in a torts class or in a contracts class, the idealism that brought you to law school that said, I'm going to go and do justice. That's why I'm here. That's what I want to be. I want to be somebody who uses reason to bring about justice. Bottle that up and put it in a drawer (laughs) and about five years after you've graduated and you're sitting at some law firm and you're pushing 10,000 papers or doing whatever you're doing for whatever that firm is, take it out and take a sip and remind yourself of why you're in this business. Like, what are you here for? Um, You know, uh, it's talented people who come to great law schools and... um, Money has all the power in the world to hire great people to do their work, to do their bidding. But what lawyers need to do is to recognize their job is not to be mere clients of the rich and powerful. The job of lawyers is to spread justice within society. And until we can find in lawyers themselves that capacity to remember that idealism that brought them into this the practice of experiencing that idealism. I I don't think we're going to restore the integrity of the the profession, and that's what we should be doing. So I think the most important thing is not to worry about what other people think, but to worry only about whether you can talk to yourself, the self you were on that first day of law school, and be proud of who you became. Because I know many lawyers aren't 10 years out, 20 years out, and the ones that are are the happiest, most um, powerful, powerful, and, and, and,
0: and impactful people that we have in our in our profession. Yeah. Again, you know, Steve Freeland, Enrique Armijo, Mike Rich, others who are not only part of the group for ComTech but also teaching here at the law school. Uh, on behalf of the law school, thank you so much today for joining us. Right, being incredibly candid and forthright in these questions, some of which I recognize were difficult questions to answer. Thank you very significantly for taking the time to be here, given the fun that you're going to be having in a few hours (laughs) up in Washington. But mostly, thank you so much for taking the time today to join us on Hearsay Culture. Thank you, David.